Hola, bonjour, hello, and welcome to the Really Just Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Alongside me today, we have Matthew Weatherly-White, the founder of CapRock, a client advisor, uh, investment advisory firm that handles over $4.5 billion in client assets with $1 billion uh, deployed to sustainable and impact investments. Matthew, thanks for being with us today. It's great to be here, Kevin. Good to see you again. Well, it's great. Exactly. It is great to see you again. And la- just to give our audience a little background about how we met, uh, Matt- Matthew's uh, company, Caprock, was on the top 100 impact companies list on our magazine here uh, last year in 2019. And we had the chance to speak in Nashville, North Carolina, a little bit about capitalism and how it's evolving. Um, I was rewatching this interview uh, back in June, I believe it was, if, you know, four months ago, if you're listening to this on audio. And I just remember thinking like, man, we gotta get this guy back in the show. <laughs> so I think I reached out to you in the email and through our conversations, our lengthy conversations, we decided to kind of put together an online video glossary to help define these impact terms and thus hopefully unlock some, uh, some cash flow towards these sustainable investments. Is that kind of a good uh, description of, of what we've yeah, done this last couple of months? That's a great tee up. And I really enjoyed the conversation in April. I remember thinking, guys, guy really gets it. He asks great questions. And so the idea of sitting back down together with you and digging a little bit deeper was really appealing to me. Well, it's, I, I asked a lot of questions because I think it's important to know that no one has the answers. Yeah. I've interviewed multiple people and I always ask them, what's their definition of a re-leader? They're all different. Um, and so that right there just goes to show, you know, no one understands one concept completely and there's no one definition for it. So I think, you know, part of the intent of this conversation today, uh, if you will, is, is um, to, you know, understand that no one has all the answers, but to help leaders in capital markets maybe think of a bigger existential question. Yeah. Think of their own questions and think about how maybe they can start, um, you know, asking questions to businesses and how they can improve uh, their own uh, decisions and, yeah. and purposeful decisions in that. That's a great framework. Um, and your observation is spot on that nobody has all the answers. I mean, we've been working on this for quite a while. We collectively yeah. have been working on this for quite a while. And so there are some answers that are starting to emerge, right? There are some frameworks that are starting to emerge, some systems of measurement that are starting to codify and, and get, some, get some attention. So I think that while nobody has all the answers, Directionally, we sort of know where the industry is going. And so I think that's the groundwork here um, underneath this conversation. So I think it's cool how we have this set up though. So we're, we're doing a podcast right now and we're gonna be taking these definitions, these answers, these analogies, all this jargon that we're gonna be throwing at people. <laughs> we're gonna throw out a lot of jargon. A lot of jargon today. No, it's jargon-free environment. <laughs> We're gonna make this a jargon-free zone. Jargon-free zones. Uh, we're, we're gonna be taking these people, we're gonna be throwing in the video clips online at real-leaders.com uh, where you can go on and, and anytime you need help on, a, on an impact term, such as like supply chain transparency, ESG, what are these things? Hopefully we're gonna have a video. I don't know if we're gonna to get to it today, but we'll see. Hopefully we're gonna have a video uh, for each of these definitions. Uh. Great idea. Uh, on that glossary. Oh, thank you. I'm very smart. So yeah, it's, you know, that's why that's why I'm here. Uh, but, so Matthew, first off, though, uh, you know, would you mind telling our audience a little background about yourself um, and what experiences kind of led up to uh, the founding of Cadrock? Yeah. So um, yeah, I started cutting my teeth in the financial advisory world <laughs> for a big Wall Street firm, Smith Barney, um, in 1993. And I attended my first SRI in the Rockies conference in 1994. For those who are 
uninitiated SRI stands for socially responsible investing. And I was intrigued with the notion that capitalism and the power of the markets could orient towards a different kind of a world, one that's more environmentally responsible, one that's more sustainable. And so I went to this conference thinking, oh, there's going to be some answers there. And while I was um, yeah, really intrigued by the people there, they, they kind of felt like more my tribe than the people I was interacting with on Wall Street, it also felt to me like there was um, a little bit of magical thinking, a little bit of magical thinking happening at the conference. And by that I mean that there was a, um, a soft consensus that, you know, if enough people just kind of did this SRI thing, then the world would shift. And mm. I, didn't, I didn't track that logic because I didn't see a transmission mechanism available to people buying and selling stocks relative to corporate behavior change. Um, and so I kind of drifted away from the SRI movement um, in the late 90s. But then in the middle part of the last decade, I was invited to a small gathering of super thoughtful people from the Heron Foundation and the Kellogg Foundation and the MacArthur Foundation and some entrepreneurs and some wealth holders in Silicon Valley. And they were trying to sort of tease out some answers to this question. Is there an intrinsic financial trade-off between, um, let me say it differently, is there an tr intrinsic financial trade-off attending an investment that, in, that, that wants to make positive social and environmental benefit, right? Create social value. And that just rang like a bell in my head. I just remember thinking that's actually what was missing at the SRI and the Rockies conference. And so really that was like the seed for me convincing my partners at CapRock to launch this impact investing platform where we began to interrogate that same question. The question of financial trade-off when you're trying to create durable, measurable social and environmental value. So that's sort of the history of it. Um, you know, we started at CapRock. We became a founding B Corp. I met the guys who started B Lab, which is the certifying entity behind B Corps and Benefit Corporations. Um, volunteered to serve on a couple of early standards committees and convinced my partners to become um, a certified B Corp. And that was really the beginning of us. Now I've got over a billion dollars of, of capital oriented towards impact investing. And I think it's not an exaggeration to say that we're certainly one of the most highly regarded impact investing firms in the world right now. You said it rang like a bell. That was what was missing, that trade-off. Yeah. Um, it was the conversation around the trade-off. Conversation around the trade-off. Okay. Yeah. And, and I would still say that it's still a conversation totally. today. It totally is. I mean, I, even last night, and I'm just going to go off tangent, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm speaking with my friend from back home who now lives out here as me up with last night, and he works for a logistics service company for shipping and distribution. Uh, so they house products in their own warehouses, they coordinate the shipping, and they basically reduce costs for uh, companies trying to take a product from point A to point B. Mm. Big, big follower of the podcast, loves it, and was looking online to, to see how they could maybe look at their own carbon emissions and look at their um, how they can work with these companies to, you know, down the supply chain. Because I mentioned supply chain transparency yep. in a lot of these episodes, and he couldn't find a way. Hmm. He couldn't find a way in their business and the businesses that they work with. He has told me they don't care about this stuff, nor do they think it can increase their profits. So, to frame this question, yeah. capitalism right now. What does capitalism mean to you? And if you believe, I know last time we spoke, you viewed it as a system. Does this system need updated? And 
in what ways can it be updated? Yeah, so I would flip that question a little bit, or I'd frame it a little bit differently. Okay. Yes, capitalism to me is an operating system. And we all own smartphones, and we all know that periodically smartphones need a system upgrade. Um, but I wouldn't use it as a forcing function. I don't think that capitalism needs an upgrade. I mean, I, I do, personally, I do, but that's, that's my opinion, and I'm not going to shape capitalism. But I think it's a little bit different. I think capitalism, as an operating system, eventually reflects the prevailing mores of society and culture. And you know, culture, the way I look at it, um, culture is nothing more than a series of narrative shifts. We talked on the last podcast about how colonialism used to be a perfectly acceptable way to organize global trade. Right. And how slavery was a totally understandable way to control labor costs, right? And um, regardless of their economic viability, those practices and many others at one point simply became indefensible, unacceptable from a societal perspective. And I think that what we're seeing right now is the emergence of a cultural perspective that says continuing to operate capitalism as if the negative, principally environmental externalities, all the bad shit that happens that we don't pay attention to because it's not on a company's balance sheet, mm. all that bad shit doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like we, as our knowledge around climate change, for example, continues to crystallize and as the science hardens, it becomes increasingly indefensible to continue to operate capitalism as if that didn't matter. Hmm. And that's what I think is happening. Um, there's this fabulous Latin phrase, interregnum, between reigns. And it's usually used in political terms, originally in, in Europe, when you know, one monarch would die and before the next monarch was crowned. Um, but it's been used in domestic politics as well, between administrations. We think of it as a lame duck period, you know, when one guy has lost an election but he's still the president and nothing much happens. That's an interregnum. But I think it's also used culturally. Like, I think we're between periods in our culture. And uh, the period that we're sort of leaving behind is the period where the environmental costs associated with capitalism could be comfortably ignored. And the period we're heading to is a period where these environmental costs are going to be internalized into the functioning of capitalism. We're in this really messy, uncertain, volatile interregnum, this period between these two periods. And I think that's the fascinating part right now. And that's where you get these really intense arguments where some people will say, absolutely not, capitalism will never do that because that's not what it's designed to do. Liberally misquoting Milton Friedman, who said, you know, the business of business is business. And the next group of people who say, what do you mean? Capitalism is the most efficient optimization mechanism we've ever invented. Right. Why don't we just optimize for something like environmental response, you know, resiliency? Hmm. So I'm going to make the argument that Okay, so with the framework in mind that America's greatest export is philanthropy. I'm just gonna put, throw that on the table, just leave it there for right now. If you're gonna say capitalism is a reflection of, of human nature and culture, um, are you saying that there is this new movement of people that are saying, okay, about all this, this negative externalities over here, all this waste and this plastic harm, all this, these social inequities, Let's start focusing on these as a culture, and then now it's reflecting in capitalism. I think that's what's happening. And do you think that conversation is a trend? And do you believe that it's a trend that is happening elsewhere in the world? Because a lot of people may think, 
hey, here we are Americans, we have the opportunity to go down and, and help all these people, but these people in these struggling areas might not think like that. Yeah. Um, and like, I guess maybe to have that shift, what's it gonna take then if we're really trying to go down that? Man, you, you are touching on such a complicated issue here. It's so complex. So complex. And there's not a right answer, obviously. There's no silver bullet. There's not a right answer, but I think there is a right frame of inquiry, I think. And what you didn't say, and I'm going to interpret what you said and I'm put it back to you, and you can check me if I'm, if I'm off. Um, we in the developed world, principally America and principally Western Europe, have developed to the point where we can indulge ourselves in the luxury of considering something at the very, very top of Maslow's hierarchy. Whereas if you're still operating around basic food security, basic shelter, yes. you simply can't. Like, you can't think about that. Right. Um, and that's why this subject of climate justice gets really complicated. I mean, I read a, a research report not long ago that said since 1980, 46% of all of the wealth attributed to the burning of fossil fuels has been aggregated principally in North America and Western Europe. And only 3% of the consequences of that operating system, of the burning of fossil fuels, is happening. Yeah, the consequences are happening yeah. there. Oh, yeah. So there's this massive asymmetry between wealth creation and concentration and the consequences associated with climate change driven by the oh. burning of fossil fuels, okay. Okay. right? That's here we go. So if you have that asymmetry, do we in the developed world have the right to say to developing worlds, God, you guys, you know what? You don't get access to fossil fuels because it's really bad for the world. Yeah. I don't think we do, but I think uh, to your, maybe that you're right in that sense when you're saying this is, you know, I alluded to the question of if we're in this position, um, are we, is this an, only an American theme? Is this an only it's powerhouse not. theme? It's not. So I lived in France for a year, okay. um, four years ago, and spoke at the EU's annual um, um, event on Awards for Social Innovation, I think it was the name of the conference. Um, and it was a very developed conversation. Um, Norway, obviously, the Sovereign Wealth Fund, the largest single pool of capital in the entire world, has made the decision to strip all carbon exposure from their invested assets. Now, you can see that either as um, a directional trade on carbon risk or a hedge on the fact that the predominant source of wealth in Norway is oil. You can be the interpreter of that. But nonetheless, from a signaling perspective, it's pretty important. Um, similarly, um, there is now, not just now, but over the last 15 years, I think there's been a mandate for pools of public capital, um, pension funds, and endowments to incorporate ESG factors, environmental, social, and governance factors into their investment decisions. So it's, in many ways, it's a more evolved conversation in Western Europe than it is in the United States, but it's also very different. It's a state-mandated one as opposed to here where it's an entrepreneur-driven right. one. And I think of that as the sort of the culture of the collective or the cult of the collective versus the cult of the individual. In America, it's very much about some dude in a garage figuring out how to do cold fusion, and that's gonna save us. And in Europe, it's very much 
state-sponsored research will, which will support cold fusion and then private capital will come in and scale it. So it's a very different culture, hmm. um, but I think the conversation is happening in parallel in both places. Where it's really different is in these developing worlds. I mean, I just saw that India tendered, I think it was 21 bids for a coal mine, a coal plant, coal mine, coal mine to supply power plants. They terminated the tender offer because there was insufficient demand in mm. India. Hmm. So what does that tell you? Directionally, India knows that coal is dying. None of those power plants wanted to be on long-term offtake agreements with coal right. with solar coming in at one cent a kilowatt. Hmm. Now, and I don't know if you saw that 900 kilowatt or 900 megawatt um, uh, deal that was just announced in Saudi Arabia, 900 megawatts at one cent. It's the lowest in history. I mean, that's, that's almost free Sweet. energy, yeah. almost free energy. And you know India's looking at that. Yeah. So it's like, there's this really interesting, um, you have to go back to that interregnum concept that we talked about, like right at the top, right? Um, we're in this really messy period where we don't really know what's gonna, what's gonna replace the existing paradigm of comfortably externalizing the negative consequences of the current operating system of capitalism. Right. And we don't know what it's going to look like when we internalize it, but we're starting to see that framework emerge. So if we, if there's a lot of uncertainty right now. You just threw out the term ESG. Yeah. Um, how do investors and impact investors use the term ESG? If you do, what is it? And is it a, I guess, how, how do investors use it? That's before I say anything else. Yeah, so different investors use it differently. So ESG is simply a framework to think about the environmental, social, and governance aspects of a business, positive or negative, right? And it's a way to think about simultaneously providing a risk mitigating framework around your investments as well as an opportunity identifier. So for example, if you are thinking about investing in a renewable energy project finance deal, the opportunity is really, really clear, providing low cost clean energy. So from an envir environmental perspective, the benefits there. Now whether or not the deal makes sense from a financial perspective is another issue, but you can see why from an environmental perspective there'd be some benefit there. On the risk side, you'd be able to figure out what the governance risks are, the social consequences. You know, if you had a, um, if you had a solar plant that's um, displacing a lot of jobs, right, in coal, mm -hmm. you know, then you sort of have to think about that piece or the political risk or the headline risk. Like, there's other huh. risks, but you sort of yeah. think about all those. So it's just a framework for thinking about the risks and opportunities associated with an investment that lie outside of the balance sheet of the company, right? So um, we do incorporate ESG at different levels um, with different investments. And I think even outside of us, it's really rare these days that we talk to an asset manager, an investor, who doesn't incorporate some components of ESG into their investments, right? Investment decisions, very rare mm -hmm. these days. Um, the depth to which they incorporate it is the open question. Um, you know, some firms define themselves as ESG firms, like you know Al Gore's firm, um, um, Generation Investment Management. Like, they're all about sustainability and resource efficiency. That's that's their DNA. Um, other firms just sort of have it as a sort of a tick the box exercise in their security selection. Um, yeah. So does that help? Yeah, no, hundred percent helps. And, and here's the thing I'll throw at you is. You just said environmental, social, and governance. 
Okay, and I think leadership is the, plays a big part of that G in Don't terms of time. in terms of what decisions you're going to make on the yeah. environment and, and social standards. But one thing I didn't hear you mention was like mission-driven, purpose-driven companies. What's the difference between a company that might be in an ESG portfolio that does resource allocation, efficient allocation, versus a mission-driven company? Yeah, so um, it's a great question. How does a mission-driven company differentiate itself in the marketplace? Yes. And how do investors think about that mission relative to profitability, enterprise value, eventual return on capital, yeah. right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to flip it a little bit, right? Okay. Um, yeah. One of the things we're always really interested in is where does the mission or the corporate responsibility sit in the org chart? Okay. Right? Does it sit underneath the chief operating officer? I.e., is that integrated into the operations of the enterprise? Or does it sit under the chief marketing officer? Is it a public-facing? Mm. And to us, that tells us a lot about the culture of the company. Right. Right? So if it's the former and it's integrated into operations and I have an anecdote to share with you in a second, then we're going to get really interested. Because what that's going to tell us is that as difficult decisions appear before the board or the leadership of the company, the mission is going to always help shape the decision. And so we have a certain sense of confidence right. around how that's going to be integrated into their operating decisions, right? Whereas if it's part of the marketing effort, who knows, right? It could get ditched. Mm. It could, I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, BPs, right? Rebranding to Beyond Petroleum. Well, their whole deal was, we're going to be beyond petroleum. We're going to chart a path to post-carbon era. Really? BP? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was total greenwashing and clearly a marketing statement. It had nothing to do with the operations of the company. Mm. So that's a kind of an obvious example. Is that greenwashing? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we can talk about that in, in a little bit. But the anecdote I wanted to share, I, was, um, I gave a, a presentation to the National Association of Corporate Directors. And it was a Chatham Health Rules okay. deal, so I'm not allowed to sort of talk about who was there. Um, but one of the, I was there to talk about ESG from an investor's perspective. And I was sitting on the podium with one other guy, and it was being um, moderated by a senior person at, from, um, PwC, and the person next to me was the chief sustainability officer for a publicly traded company. And he told me that they decided to nest their sustainability initiative under the legal team because he felt like this was eventually going to be a liability. Mm. And they wanted legal to have control over how the company integrated sustainability into their operations. They happen to use a lot of water, right? So it's a really key question for them, and it's not Coca-Cola, for you know, not it's not a beverage company, but they use a lot of water in their manufacturing. And so this idea of the legal consequences of saying very publicly, which they have done, it's in their annual reports, they've had a five-year program for this, sustainability is key to their operations. They were really concerned that that would open themselves up to lawsuits if they weren't operating sustainably. And I, to me, that was like a, a total light bulb moment, right? Because it was like that's actually the problem. Mm. with integrating ESG at the operation level because nobody really knows how to deal with that. And then when the Q&A opened up, all these corporate directors were just hammering me for how investors thought about ESG, most of it on the legal side. And you look at um, the idea that, you know, you know, SASB, the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, so they're the sister organization to FASB, 
Financial Accounting Standards Board, mm -hmm. and they've been trying to figure out how to map materiality in every single industry vertical relative to sustainability, hmm. which is awesome and problematic. Because as soon as you identify materiality, if a company director or a C-suite person says, hey, we're all about sustainability, then in theory that opens up to the, that opens them up to the challenges of disclosure. And SEC filings require material risk disclosure. And if you disclose it, then you open yourself up to the liability right. with underperformance, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, it gets really complicated. And yet, that directionally, that's where we're going. And so all these boards are grappling hard with how to deal with this. Yeah, I was gonna say, well, that, that decision right there to disclose everything would, would be a part of that transparency, a part of that company's totally. operational decision to do that. And to your point, 100% governance. Yeah. That is all governance. All governance right there in yeah. the ESG. The disclosure part, you know, how you deal with the E part <laughs> operationally, mm -hmm. you could do that totally under wraps, right? You could do that internally and never disclose it, never really worry about it. But if you choose to go down that path, and the SEC adopts materiality rule, particularly around climate change, and that, I think that might be happening, um, then disclosure becomes a really interesting question. And material risk disclosures, um, you know, that, that's lawsuit material right there. So this company that uses a lot of water, uh, they're worried about you know, activists or people coming in and saying, really? hey, you're using all these resources, water is becoming a scarce resource, therefore you need to cut production and that's why they're lowering up and, and using, I guess, making decisions based off of those legal ramifications. Is that it? Yeah, and, and they're not they're not lowering up as a, as a it anticipates confrontation. In, right. That's uh, yeah. But they're they're looking at it through a legal lens. Right. Which I think is fascinating from a governance perspective. Right. It's really different from the way everybody's been thinking about it. So who controls capitalism then? Is it is it? I'm, I mean, it's, this is an interesting question because if if the government controls how businesses are making decisions or I guess you know, mainstream media that might cause people to hop on this train of we're going to be going after these companies that are controlling all of these resources. How does it evolve? And, and if it's going to stay in that sustainable place, I mean, it's never been sustainable. Capitalism, like you said, it's amoral. It's, it's not... It's just it's a system. It's yeah. just that there's players in the system, and players are trying to get coin, and they're making decisions based off of that, that incentive. Yeah, I mean it's amoral. An important distinction, not immoral. Sorry, amoral. It, yeah. it, no, you said amoral. I just wanted to really flag oh, okay. the difference between amoral and immoral for for the listeners. Um, it is without morality. It is not um, intrinsically evil. Um, I used this phrase a few minutes ago. You know, capitalism is an optimization mechanism. It's an operating system. And it optimizes within the given rules. Beautifully, it operates within a, a set of rules defined by the government, a set of rules defined by you know, the markets, governed by the SEC, which is an arm of the government. It operates within a set of rules, societal expectations and cultural mores. Um, and it optimizes within those sets of expectations. And to date, we have tacitly agreed, um, and some people have explicitly stated, that capitalism should optimize exclusively along one axis, and that is to maximize profitability, primarily with the shareholder in mind. 
And as you saw with the Business Roundtable's restated statement of purpose, there's now this growing consensus that capitalism should orient towards a stakeholder perspective. Now, you can get really cynical about that very easily and say that that's sort of a metaphorical heat shield to guard the growing, guard against the growing rise of resentment mm -hmm. um, against these big corporations. And I think there's probably some part of that as well. You could also get cynical and say there's no teeth in it. It's just a statement of purpose and you can sort of make this grand public announcement and then ignore it. Um, or you could say optimistically and directionally, hey, that's actually kind of an interesting shift. Like they took the time to edit their statement of purpose for the first time in 15 years. Mm -hmm. Huh, all right, so what does it actually mean? Well, right now, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, that's the term that's being thrown around a lot, like maximizing stakeholder value. And that's, that's been like the constant theme when I ask business owners what needs to change, that's the go-to message. Yeah. And, okay, so sorry, I might have cut you off there, yeah. but I was just gonna say that um, that message of having a stakeholder value be that number one uh, mission of a company, uh, I guess their theory is that the leadership of those companies if they're a certified B Corp, if they're this you know, great almighty certified B Corp, they're gonna make decisions based on their stakeholders rather than having to listen to shareholder pressure to cut corners and, and maximize profits in that defined quarter or period of time. Yeah, and it gets really sticky. Um, I think one of the reasons that stakeholder value has become the sort of lingua franca for the next version of capitalism is because it's really amorphous and you can sort of define it however you want. And so it's a really easy label which sounds softer and more yeah. gentle and more inclusive than shareholder value. And it is, right? Um, it's situational too, obviously. It's situational, yeah. And, yeah. And, and I can say that for, you know, for us, we're, certif we're a certified B Corp. Um, and when every time a company gets uh, recertified, you go through the B survey, which is this proctological exam, effectively, of your, com of your company. <laughs> Um, and there's no way you can do all of it. There's no way you can do all of it. Like I think the highest score in the whole world is like 140 out of 200. Yeah. It's a company I invested in as an aside. Um, and you shouldn't be investing in a company just because of its high B, B score, is that correct? No, we would never use a B score as the driving decision factor for investment. Just to make that clear, yeah. But it is absolutely, um, it's like shorthand. Yeah for the culture of the company. It's a diligence accelerator for us. If we know a company has become, has gone through the brain damage of becoming B certified and we see their score and we break it down by community, environment, worker, et cetera, then we have a good sense of how they operate and how they're going to make decisions, right? Mm -hmm. All right, that's awesome. Um, okay, where's I going with that? Well, you're doing about situational example. Yeah, so, so, so for us, you know, our, our B score is like 120 something, and we've been best for the world in a number of categories for years. Like we're a pretty high performing B Corp, and we're always evaluating how we're gonna run our business. And some of the decisions that we make run contrary to what B Corp would say, or B Lab would say is best practices in sustainable business management. Mm -hmm. Some of the decisions that we make are right in line with what B Lab says is best business, best decisions in you know, business, sustainable business practice management. And so, um, so it's just that's a very long way of saying that saying our new orientation is towards stakeholder value 
is simultaneously an incremental reorientation and leaves a lot of room for interpretation. You know the difference between magnetic north and true north? Are you a navigator? The, uh, the difference? No, I'm not a navigator. Explain to me. I, I know, I, I've heard this before. Though. Yeah, so, so true north is the point on the globe where all of the longitude lines intersect. intersect. Yeah. But magnetic north is just off-center from that. It's not actually at true north. So if you're navigating, your compass goes to magnetic north, not okay. true north. Okay. And depending on where you are on the globe, there's going to be a certain amount of deviation from that. And you have to adjust for that when you're navigating, or else when you're navigating using your compass, you're going to end up in the wrong place. Right? Okay. So the way I've been thinking about this new statement of purpose is the difference between true north and magnetic north. Is it a huge difference? Not really. But is it, is it a difference which, depending on where you are and the decisions that you make, could land you in a really different place? Mm. Totally. Mm -hmm. And so I think that as I interpret the B Corp movement, as I interpret the surge in, or resurgence in stakeholder value, the business roundtable decisions, Mark Benioff's op-ed in the New York Times yesterday around stakeholder value. Yeah, and what did he say? He just said there needs to be a reboot of capitalism. Okay. and that companies need to be more aware of the breadth of the people who are impacted by the operations of the company or the operations of the whole system. It's nothing that, you know, it's everything you and I were talking about in, mm -hmm. in April and many, many other people have been talking about for a long time. But what I find interesting in this point of time, going back to that interregnum, right, um, those who were advocating for stakeholder capitalism 10 years ago were advocating for it in an environment where the prevailing orientation was towards shareholder capitalism. And as a result, their perspective had virtually no influence hmm. on the operating system. Hmm. If we get to a shareholder, I mean, a stakeholder-oriented form of capitalism, there's going to be a massive shift in the way companies operate. But how we get there is going to be so messy because the received wisdom has simply been you can't do it without a financial trade-off. And to get back to your question 10 minutes ago, 15 minutes ago, on financial trade-off, just because a business operates responsibly or sustainably doesn't mean that it will not cost financial return, but it does mean it doesn't have to. Mm. And that's what's been lost in this argument, this sort of bizarrely binary argument where people are saying, yes, there's a trade-off or no, there's no trade-off. It's like, right. I hate that kind of thinking. Right. There's a continuum, and we're going to touch on this in a second when we talk about blended value. There's a continuum of absolutely pinning the dial for maximizing profit to the business owners, shareholder capitalism, and near socialism where you're distributing all of the profits of the business to all the stakeholders equally and equitably in a way that sort of makes everybody feel really good. But like that, those are the two extremes. Hmm. But there's a lot of room in the middle. And that's sort of where I think most companies are gonna land. Somewhere in that middle zone. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. There's not anything intrinsically wrong with that. I can tell you as, as investors, we're constantly evaluating the projected financial return of the investments. And some of them, because of their early stage, undeveloped markets, the frictional costs of developing new products, they're not going to generate the kinds of IRRs that other companies might that are more developed. Mm -hmm. Duh. That's capitalism. Okay. 
you know? Then you layer on the ESG part or the impact part, and it just sort of sorts it out differently. It sort of it, it rank orders all those decisions a little bit differently. But it's it is so um, it's so disorienting to me to hear conventional investors be totally comfortable with the idea of deploying capital with a elevated risk because of you know. Uh, place the R in, 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 in the life cycle of the company, or the life cycle of the market, or the life cycle of the product, right? Perfectly willing to lose their money on that. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. but they're unwilling to lose their money for the same business that says they have a social enterprise. It's like everything's being held to a higher standard, and that, I think, is going to start breaking down as the stakeholder capitalism thing starts getting more traction. I mean, I don't know. That, I'm, so, okay, well, let's, let, let's help out our audience a little sure. bit. So I'm just going to try and bring this full circle. We, we <laughs> talked a little about, well, so trade-offs was a big topic we talked about as one. Uh, stake, uh, maximizing stakeholder value was another. And then the third example I really liked was the, the North versus True North. Mm -hmm. And the example I'll give is, I think it was Tony Robbins that, that gave it, is you know, if, if, you're, if you have two boats and one boat takes a marginal turn to the yeah. right, in 10 years, it's going to end up over here. Totally. Ways, ways away. Whether this is the best place or this is the best place, we don't know. Yep. But it's going to be in this different location. So the poster child example B Corps love to give and I like to give is Patagonia. Right. That you put me in touch with, Vincent Stanley. And Vincent was telling me when I did his podcast was, I didn't realize that they started out as a, a hardware uh, climbing company. I didn't even know that. Great Pacific Ironworks. Yeah. GPIW. I, I had no idea. Yeah. And, and so... What I think was in, in that DNA, in the model, in the operating model, was Vincent would check for hairline fractures in an ice pick. Because he knew if they didn't check for those hairline fractures, it could be someone in the climbing community that would fall you know, a thousand feet on yeah. a rock and everyone knows everyone in the oh, climbing community. Back then it was such a small community. That's what he was saying. So, yeah. so that had happened. And then they needed a clothing company to support the business, but they wanted to have that same ideology of, we're gonna pro pro provide a durable, quality, premium product yeah. that people are gonna be able to wear and have for years. And it's gonna protect our people and, and you know, ultimately the environment. I got and my first fleece jacket from Patagonia in 1979. Really? I still have it. So, okay, <laughs> exactly. So there you go, you still have it. And it's guaranteed for life. If, if it, for some reason, dissolves, which I don't I mean, it's ratty as hell. Like, I hardly ever yeah, wear it anymore. Sure. But I could send it back to them and say, I, I, I pounded the shit out of this yeah. thing. Can I have a new one? And they'd send me a new one. Exactly. And, and, that's, and that's in their DNA. That's, that's what they've, they've been, yep. been preaching for a long time. And, and so Vincent says, as, now I'm going to go to the boat example in the True North, is as they grew their company, you referred to having you know, is this mission in the marketing or is it in the operations? And I would argue for Patagonia, it's been a little bit of both, but predominantly in the, in the operating yeah. uh, portion of the company. And the way they've done that is, again, back to stakeholder value, they've gone to all their suppliers and they had like 150 and then they cut 100. Yeah. So that's, you know, I wouldn't say that's a lot of jobs are taken away since the suppliers are already there. But what happened is they wanted to have closer relationships yeah with those suppliers and with their subsidiaries. So that's an example that, the poster child example that I like to give. So I guess the, the question is for you, and we were talking about, you know, there's all these different examples. 
I asked someone on the podcast the other day, if a company wants to be a certified B corporation, if they want to be a benefit corporation with stakeholders, uh, maximizing stakeholder value, does their product need to be a premium product? And how does that change if their product already isn't? Because there's plenty that aren't. I already gave the example of my friend's company. You've got plenty of people that want to outsource from China. You know, cheap products. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to give my thoughts on this in, in a way that might be a little bit unexpected. Um, the thing about B Corp that is um, problematic is that there is a minimum floor to become certified, right? You have to get a certain number of points to become certified. And what's lost in that threshold conversation is that there's a lot that you can do right up to that point that's beneficial, but wouldn't, still wouldn't qualify you as a B Corp. Mm. The way that we think about it at Caprock is that we try to orient everything towards better rather than saying, hey, here's a threshold you gotta jump over in order to qualify as an impact investment. If, you, if we orient everything towards better, to go back to the magnetic north versus true north, if we orient everything towards better, and by better, I, I, I don't mean, I think this company is better than that sure, company. Yeah. It's like, there are, some, there are absolutely some things you can think about, you know, um, that are measurable and um, quantifiable. And the, B, and the B Corp survey does an amazingly good job at capturing all of that. I mean, it's an unbelievably robust business management tool. Even if you choose to never become certified, or even if your business can't get over that hump, of qualification standards. You can use the B survey as a management tool and it's free. Mm. Just put your business through it and then pick the ones where you get bad points and say mm. we can address these issues and suddenly you're gonna orient towards better. Um, I just wanna be provocative for a second. No, to answer your question directly, no, I don't think you need to have a premium product. I don't. I mean, look at us, we're a financial services firm. Nothing special about us really, we're run, We're founded and run by a bunch of middle-aged white guys. Mm -hmm. Nothing super special about that. But because of the way that we've chosen to run our business, we qualify as the best for the world B Corp, even though on some metrics, we suck. Right. Right? Sure. Okay. But in the scope of orienting towards better, we do enough things right, enough things that map to B Lab's definition of a sustainable business that we score really, really well. Okay. All right? Okay. I'm cool with that. Okay. But I want to be provocative for a second. Yeah, yeah. So if Patagonia, if, if Yvonne Chouinard came to the market right now and said, all right, I want to start a company and the product is going to be ludicrously expensive, we're going to offer a lifetime guarantee on it. If, you, if your product ever fails, we'll just take it back. We'll either repair it or we'll give you a new one forever. We're gonna spend untold amounts of money developing transparency into our supply chain and markets that map to our values. We're gonna develop a organic cotton, global organic su cotton supply chain. We're gonna develop a non-petroleum based um, wetsuit material. And not only are we gonna develop it, we're not even gonna keep it as ours. We're gonna give it away, the IP. Anybody can use it. We're gonna spend all the money developing and then we're gonna give the IP away. We're going to have a relatively low number of um, salesmen. We're going to pay them really, really, really well. We're going to commit an enormous amount of capital to environmental causes, right? And that's all prop. They'd never get funded. No. They'd, nobody would ever underwrite them. Right. Right. And yet, now that they've demonstrated that, 
over 25 plus years, they're held up as one of the paragons of sustainable businesses. And I think that that, um, that uh, well, co not conflict, that, that cognitive bias, that juxtaposition between what they've accomplished and what the market thinks they could have accomplished, that's one of the problems, that's one of the challenges that we're dealing with. Hmm. Right? It's like we're so trained to see all of that as a cost mm -hmm. that if Patagonia were to come to the market today, they probably wouldn't be able to raise startup capital. But because they've already demonstrated it, everybody's like, oh yeah, those guys kick ass. They're really admired. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, I think it's, you know, to get back to the interregnum, like we just haven't gotten to the place yet where those non-quantifiable clearly beneficial components to the way that Patagonia is run, their commitment to excellence, their commitment to durability, their commitment to the environment, their commitment to their employees, all those things lead to business value creation that can't be quantified on the balance sheet. There's no, there's no, there's no causation. There's lots of correlation, but no causation. Mm -hmm. And so an MBA can't do a discounted cash flow model around providing on-site daycare and link it to net operating profitability and higher revenues. And yet, clearly, that's the case, as demonstrated by Patagonia. I'm going to make the transition here. Okay. Wait, let's, let's talk some definitions. <laughs> we, we, we've been talking a lot about capitalists, and my mind's about to explode. <laughs> so, but I'm going to stick on this Patagonia example. Yeah. Recycled plastics. Uh, circular economy is, is a big, another, you know, I don't know if it's a new idea. It's been around for a long time, obviously, but it's... it's Become, it's come to the surface in terms of uh, how people can regenerate uh, products that once were something, they decompose, and then you bring it back to life and mm -hmm. better and you add more value. Uh, what is the circular economy to you? At least, you know, maybe I'll read, it, read off my de definition first. I said yeah. circular versus linear economy. I say a linear economy uses new resources to produce make-the-waste products or services that can't be reused. The circular economy consists of firms that close the loop on a product or service cycle or services cycle and add more value back into the value chain, i.e. Barnana, a company, yeah. upcycles bananas uh, so they utilize deformed throwaway bananas that would otherwise be thrown away and then they convert them into delicious bite-sized snacks. So that is a way a company can close the loop. On, that, on the linear economy. What does the circular economy mean to you and, and where have you seen some good examples? Yeah, so I loved your frame, the make toys is a really interesting, I've not, I've not heard that phrase before. I don't know if you coined it or if you heard it somewhere no, else. No. It's a good phrase. I don't think I coined um, it. And I would disagree a little bit with, with the way that you framed it because I don't mm. think those companies intentionally make products that cannot be recycled. I just think they're not thinking about it. No, they're not, yeah. Right? And a lot of the products that it's we, the over here, it's the reflection, right? It's, it's negative externalities, right? Yeah. It's all it's all the stuff we were talking about for the last culture. half hour. It's culture. It's like, oh yeah, we'll just throw it away, right? No worries. We'll just make a bunch more of those and we'll throw it away. But what Patagonia has proven, and a lot of other companies have proven, is you can capture that waste stream and repurpose it into second and third level consumer products, right? And so for me, like, a circular economy doesn't have to be within one company. Like one company doesn't have to be entirely circular. Right. But as long as the product that's being generated can continue to be repurposed. I mean, um, you know, we are in an era where we're making what I call proto-products, you know, proto perma-products, products that will vastly outlive 
our culture. I mean, plutonium. Mm. Plutonium is like a freaky product. Like What's plutonium? I don't know what plutonium is. It's, um, it's a highly radioactive material. It's a byproduct of nuclear energy, right? From Pluto. From Pluto. <laughs> yeah, plutonium-235. It's, it's one of the products they used to ignite um, nuclear fission. Oh. Um, <laughs> Damn. Yeah, it's, it's horrible stuff. But it's going to last hundreds of thousands of years. I mean, hundreds of thousands of years. I mean, even the humble styrofoam cup, you know, 500 years ago, America didn't exist. 500 years ago, Notre Dame didn't exist. 500 years ago, all sorts of stuff we think of now as you know, being some of the great products of our civilization didn't exist. Well, those styrofoam cups are going to be here 500 years from now. Mm -hmm. Like, and they're everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's not like Notre Dame, you know, the, the apotheosis of human creativity and architecture. It's like, those are going to be around. And I don't think it's a stretch to imagine that 500 years from now, we will be digging these things up and figuring out what to do with them because they're still going to be here. Right. All these plastics that we're making. Right. Um, so to me, the circular economy is much more about um, thinking about our capacity to make products that have a lifespan that significantly extend beyond our own and continuing to use them in different forms, mm -hmm. right? I mean, Patagonia is great. They take pet, you know. 60% recycled material. Yeah, it's recycled yeah. material, right? And I think that's the very beginning. We're at the very beginning of this idea of repurposing the off-stream, the waste streams from existing manufacturing and consumer product um, processes. And I think the banana one's a really good example. To me, that's not a closed loop. A closed loop would be taking the skins, right? And turning the skins into something. Mm. That would be a closed loop. Like the peels? Yeah, the, the peels. But in this case, they're just taking waste stream from the banana industry and continuing to use it. They're just simply making that process more efficient using more of the products. There's a lower waste component. Right. The circular part would then be taking the peels and turning them to doormats. Right. I guess bananas would already de decompose by themselves anyway. They do. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. A, that's an interesting example because bananas, yeah. as you say, can be decomposed and used to make compost, which is one of the keys to regenerative agriculture. Right. Right? So, um, but there would be a product that would otherwise been thrown away and lost money on, whereas these banana producers can now sell these bananas that... Yeah, and that's, so, so that's a really interesting point. Because yeah. if the banana company had seen that opportunity, they would have expanded their net operating margin. Right. They would have taken a waste product and turned it into a consumer product uh, within the confines of their banana business. Hmm. And that would have been an environmental impact, positive environmental impact, Lower waste, better operating efficiencies, higher margin off of the same product, right? I mean, I, I, I almost invested in a company. I chose not to do it for other reasons, but I invested, almost invested in a company that was um, used specific gravity to sort rice husks. And the business ended up, he thought it was going to be a product sale. I didn't think it was going to be a product sale. I thought it was going to be a service sale. He ended up going bankrupt. Good thing I avoided it. Somebody came in and bought the IP, bought the machine, and put it in a shed next to the Anheuser-Busch um, brewery. They use a lot of rice. So Anheuser-Busch was giving him all the rice husks. So in every rice husk, there's about 10% of it that's actually rice. They can't de-husk all the rice. So he's taking this thing, using a fluidized bed separator, specific gravity, air-infused specific gravity separator, to float the husks off of the rice kernels. 
bagging the rice kernels, walking around to the front of the building, and selling the rice back to Anheuser Busch. Interesting. That's okay. Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. But that's a good example of not a circular economy, but optimizing right. the operating efficiency of a business that yeah. has an off stream, you know, a waste stream. I don't know. I'm not sure that answer. I've never heard question. that example. No, that, yeah. that makes sense because you made a really good point about had they would have had that maybe in their operational statement and looking at their score, if that's how they want to do it. Yes, and um, that getting back to the thing about where does your sustainability operation sit? Is it marketing or operations? Right. If it's operations and the operations team has been tasked with maximizing resource efficiency, they're going to look at that rice and say, mm. why are we throwing out so much rice in our husks? Mm -hmm. Is there any way to sort this out? Okay, so wait for this transition here. So we talked about rice. Yeah. Rice, whether you knew it or not, is partially the reason our culture was able to establish community. And what I mean by that oh, is... I know where you're going with this, yeah. This thing called the rachis on the rice. I've not heard of this. And it's a little thing that breaks off that, that Anheuser-Busch, they use, they sort. Because of that adaptation with the rachis, and these farmers knew that this rachis was the cause of this, the production of the easiness to sweep a, a, a grain of rice to have all these little rice pellets come down, uh, they were able to develop agriculture. And agriculture thus blossomed and people were able to live in communities, they had a better food supply, and thus mm. they weren't traveling and being... Um, you know, hunter gatherers around the, nomads, around the yeah. world, nomads and, and, and neandering around and, and storing their food in caves. They are now able to live and sit and stabilize in one community. Then you're allowed to have families. Yeah. And then society Commerce. Blossoms. Then you have government. Then you have a leisure class. So now you have huh. comparables and incentives. You can either hunter-gather for, for meat, which is a strenuous process, it's hit or miss, but you do get that reward, or you can focus on agriculture. And so the question I have for you is, <laughs> these uh, certified B corporations now are creating comparables in the marketplace. Ah, oh, so insightful. So yeah. uh, is that, can you kind of maybe explain to our audience an example of a company that's maybe done that? If you don't have one, I do. But Yeah, I mean, I can think of a lot. And, and, um, and maybe how that's transitioning culture. Well, I can think of a lot of comparisons. What I can't think of are comparisons where we've looked at them from an investor's perspective. But I mean, you know, um, stainless steel water bottles, right? I mean, Mir and Clean Canteen are both certified B Corps that deliver to the marketplace um, water bottles, insulated mugs, insulated growlers, et cetera, right? And mm -hmm. there's a lot of companies that are not B Corps that are doing the same thing. And what I would love to know is employee retention statistics, growth statistics, market share statistics. You know, I've, I met the guys who run, who run Mir. I know the woman who started Clean Canteen, and both of them are totally committed entrepreneurs to the B Corp model. I know both of their businesses are growing really, really well. I, I, don't, I don't know how to compare them to yeah. the existing, but that's a really good point. I think that if, any, if there's any MBA students listening to this, yeah. that'd be a really interesting research project. Well, so I said, I said, creating comparables in the marketplace means to provide strong evidence your product or service will perform better than the current competitor. And I just threw that out there. And so the example I have is actually another Aurelius 100 winner who threw out this terminology to me. 
and this was in a company, I'm going to lose the name on it, but it's in Seattle, they build like LEED certified homes. And they... Green Canopy? Green Canopy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and we so, invested with Green Canopy. We've been supporters of this for a long time. So what, I guess what he was telling me... Um, Aaron? Aaron, yeah, yeah, Aaron Fairchild. There we He's go. He's awesome. Yeah, it's He and great. his wife Susan are just, they're such killer people. Great people. Yeah, great culture uh, in Green Canopy. But he, but he was saying is... Uh, who, who are the people going to buy and who are they going to invest in? And they have a different model because it's, it's not like a, a normal property management company. They do like everything, the building and all the management. I think they, they've just... So they have a debt, they have a yeah, debt maybe, fund. Yeah, sure. yeah, so they're a builder and they realized that it was difficult for them to get um, financing for these projects because the banks were not accustomed to looking at net zero homes right. and providing capital for that. So they raised a debt pool which basically created the financing for their projects. And then they had an equity pool, which would be basically an investment in the operating entity, um, the developer. Mm -hmm. um, and their whole point was we can, we can deliver high-end net zero homes at or below market, so quasi-affordable, workforce housing rather than affordable housing, um, that can demonstrate the efficacy of green building methodologies in a, in a place where real estate is really, really expensive, Seattle. Yeah. In Portland, yeah. And they've totally proven the model. Yeah. And they're still having problems raising the capital, right? Mm -hmm. Not a lot. I mean, they're, they're, they're doing it, right? But there's so much, um, there's such a preconceived notion around workforce housing and green building. They just, people just think the returns aren't there because mm -hmm. it costs so much more to do the green building and there's going to be not as much appetite. And they've demonstrated that that perspective is wrong. But, um, but anyway, I, I hijacked that. Well, what, were you, what were you going to ask? I was going to say comparables. The way you explain it to me is if he has a home that costs $10,000 and a net zero home that costs $10,000, yes. people are going to choose a net zero home yes. 10 out of 10 times. Yes. So just creating comparables in that marketplace could have a traumatic paradigm shift of, of incentives. It's just all incentives, right? So yeah. if people feel that way, that they want to maybe have a con contribute to you know, the environment society, and just have a, a net zero home, they're going to do that. That's a great example, actually. That's one of the clearest, that's one of the clearest comparable examples I can think of. Um, but I think all, all else being equal, consumers, if they're sufficiently educated, and I don't mean from a selective university education, if, they, if they're sufficiently educated, understand a choice. All else being equal, consumers will always choose yes. the more sustainable option. Yes. Full stop. So, okay, so here's another one. Economic equality. You're saying all else being equal. Ah, this one's so much more difficult. So the reason I get, <laughs> the reason I get this term is actually from uh, a woman at the University of Florida. Yeah. Um, she, she's a, a, a professor there, and she's teaching uh, students about uh, certified B corporations, social enterprises, and, and building this MBA program. So she sent me over some course material, and one of their terms was economic equality. And when I see that, I just go, what? So the first thing I put on there is I say, a theory when objectively allocation of all resources are considered fair. Yeah. So in our last, in our last episode, uh, Matthew, you said you mentioned Winston Churchill's definition of capitalism versus socialism, yeah. <laughs> and you, and which is the inherent vice of capitalism uh, is the unequal sharing of blessings. The inherent virtue of socialism <laughs> is the equal sharing of misery. Do you think the playing field will ever be level? Uh, and is capitalism to blame for this? It will never be level, and capitalism is not to blame for it. Yeah. Um, capitalism, I think, 
in that very, that very narrow application of it. Capitalism is like an economic manifestation of the inherent inequality in any population. We're not all equal. We have not all been given equal gifts. Mm -hmm. In some situations, we celebrate the inequality. We celebrate the fact that Stephen Curry, is it Stephen or Stephen? Stephen. Stephen Curry can just rain down three-pointers almost at will with the yeah. apparent effortlessness of a, of a god. And we have no problem with the fact that he gets paid ludicrous amounts of money to do that. Mm -hmm. As a society, we've said that's fine. As a society, at times, we have said it's perfectly fine to be making hundreds of millions of dollars on Wall Street. And at times, we have said that's utterly reprehensible. Mm -hmm. I think... Hmm. Let's go Most, the greatest tragedies in history mm -hmm. have been perpetrated on the citizens of, of countries in the name of equality. Let's state that one more time. The greatest tragedies in history have been perpetrated on the citizens of countries in the name of equality. Okay. Sure. We are not equal. And I don't think that anybody has a problem with that, really. Where it gets dispiriting is when the inequality is so great that the sense is that it's no longer, I hate this word fair because it's just such a slippery term. It's no longer, I mean, for. Justifiable. Justifiable, defensible. Mm -hmm. It becomes dispiriting, it becomes demotivating. Right? I mean, if for, for the CEO to make 10 or 15 or even 50 times as much money as the average employee in a company, it's not horrible. No one's going to like charge, you know, no one's going to take to the streets to, to, to argue against that. Mm -hmm. But when it's 100 times or 400 times or 1,000 times, suddenly he just has this sensation that that's just wrong, right? And I don't know how to solve that. Like, I, I don't think there's a government fiat that could come in and say, okay, henceforth, the Gini coefficient of any company is going to be no more than 50, mm. right? It's just not going to happen. But there's something in there around that. I mean, remember when um, Lee Iacocca was facing bankruptcy at Chrysler, and he had to take a government bailout. He chose to have a salary of $1 a year. Because for him, the consequences of mismanaging his company to the point that he required government assistance to support it was so great that he did not feel ethically grounded in taking a salary while he was running his company at the generosity of the federal government. Fast forward to post-crisis and the Wall Street firms that took billions of dollars of bailouts two years later were handing out massive bonuses while still well, without yet having repaid those, those bailouts. And to me that's a cultural shift. Not a function of the way capitalism works. Mm -hmm. Capitalism has no say right. in that. Well, in theory, we could have, right? I mean, shareholders could have voted against the bonuses and kicked out all the board members, but we didn't. You know, we, we sort of figured, we accepted it. But that evolution of perspective, it can swing the other way, mm -hmm. right? I mean, even Mitt Romney's dad, you know, he got paid $2.5 million a year as a CEO of, I think it was GM, right? Wasn't he a GM guy? $2.5 million a year in total comp. I think my, I don't remember, I think it was GM, but I don't remember who it was. It was mm -hmm. a big car, car company. You know, Mitt was raised in, in Detroit. And at the time, um, that was considered a huge but totally reasonable payout. 
you know, compensation, two and a half million bucks a year. Think about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, what CEO of a huge international corporation would work for two million dollars a year? I mean, even even inflation adjusted, you just wouldn't do it. So right. it's really shifted, right? Anyway, I, that's a little bit of a tangent. Um, but I think that this notion of economic equality is, let me say it differently, this notion of economic inequality is a symptom, not a disease. Okay. And the disease is opportunity inequality. Okay. And that, to me, is what impact investing, and that's what ESG, and that's what B Corps is really all about. It's about creating equal opportunities. And when you have whole sectors of society that have been marginalized because of the color of their skin, or their sexual orientation, or their gender, and are precluded from accessing the amazing opportunities and wealth creation opportunities our society has created, that's bullshit. Like, that's unfair. That's not equal. But to say that we are going to equalize society, everyone get paid this, everyone's gonna get paid the same, it just, it misses the fact that everybody has different talents to contribute, and our society will reward those talents differently at different times in history. There were times when journalists, writers, artists got paid huge amounts of money relative to other careers because that's what society rewarded at the time. Right now, we're rewarding entrepreneurs who take their companies to go public and make billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. That's what we as a society have decided is okay. That's where the rewards are flowing. There's an unequal distribution of entrepreneurial talent. Those who can do it get rewarded, like Croesus right now. Mm -hmm. Shift. So, we're, uh, we're we're speaking about. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for coming to my TED talk. No, no, no. So, so, so inequalities, right? Yeah. So you said the the symptoms and the disease, and I think there's there's a, been another factor, and I'm too young to understand this, um, because I've been immersed in it, and that's technology. Yeah. And how it's really changed, and I, I go to these conferences. Singularity University, and they're talking about exponential organizations. And I threw it on here just because I thought it was important. I said it's an organization that doubles in growth or halves its costs in uh, in a given period or every period, which is eighteen months in Moore's law. Yeah. And so the question I have with this is, when technology seems to take over, there seems to be a shift in rising inequalities. Hmm. Uh, for instance, uh, the digital divide let's say, which yeah, is yeah. for people that are unaware of that, uh, people that have access to technology have way more opportunities Yes. Uh, to reach, then get a new job, to use their car as an Uber service or a Postmates service. Um, they just have a lot more opportunities than in, in urban areas or suburban areas than rural areas in America and all around the world. Yeah. Um, you know, do you see, like, I guess, what's the question here? I mean, I wrote down, like, what trends do you see rising in inequality, energy, and nonprofits with the rise of technology? I think maybe the better question is, um, with this rise of technology, we're never going to stop it, in my opinion. I don't think we're ever no. going to stop it. That horse has left the barn. Yes. So how, how do you manage opportunity, I guess, or can you? No idea, man. And then, and then the other question I was going to say, if you, I mean, because I don't have any idea either. I mean, I, th I think that is yeah. that is very possibly the existential question facing us. Because you're dead, you're dead right, you know. And then there's going to be some issues. Okay, let me let me think about this a little bit. Yeah. 
creatively. So there will be some notional response around the edges, right? Whether it's attacks on robots, I have no idea. Whether it's a different way of thinking about capital gains and wealth distribution for the concentration mechanism that the capital markets has become relative to technology. I think that there are, there are some policy responses to this ever-widening digital divide and opportunity inequality around education and access to technology and facility therewith um, that will be somewhat addressed, right? At least it will be experimented with. Mm -hmm. Probably a better way to think about it. Um, but the fundamental issue, man, that is, that's not going away, right? And yet, you know what, though? I'm reminded of um, an op-ed that I read in The Economist a while ago, and, and it, you know, the leader was, um, in this ever-accelerating world where the interconnectivity of global commerce is driving wealth and income inequality and disparities among countries at an ever-accelerating rate, how are we ever going to grapple with the technological shifts of our society given how disruptive they are? Right? Great question. The editorial was a reprint from when it was first printed during the Industrial Revolution. No way. Okay, so it's been the same question. It's been the same question, and I'm not a Luddite. You, you know you know who the Luddites were? Uh, refresh me. Guy named, I think his name was Ned, Ned Ludd. He, he was an Englishman. I think he was a pastor, and he was absolutely certain that the Industrial Revolution was going to crush society. And so he and his band of mischief makers would, in, would attack at night the mills that were destroying the textile okay. right. industry in England. Hmm. And he'd smash, he'd bust in and bust up all the looms, right? He'd smash into the building and smash the looms. Right. And so the Luddites were, have sort of been used as a symbol of anti-technologists. And I'm not anti-technologist in any way. Mm -hmm. um, but I recognize that, you know, to get back to that interregnum, you know, we're in an, that's another interregnum, right? We're in between the period where technology was a leveling force to where technology is a concentration force. And we don't know what that looks like. We don't know mm -hmm. how to grapple with that. Well, it's interesting. I think we were, I was speaking on the phone with you. Uh, I think I just got back from my trip from Bali um, yeah. and just realizing that I don't need technology and I don't, I don't need my phone every day. I do it now for work, obviously, yeah. obvious reasons. But you kind of just realize like you're in this like materialistic world and you've got all these different things. And at what point do we say no to, to technology as a human being? And start focusing, looking toward more towards nature, or, or just that that human that human spirit, that human element. Um, and so I think it's an interesting question. I think it poses uh, when you when you create that juxtaposition of, uh, of, harnessing technology as as leverage, uh, of, of to assert your dominance on your competition, not just in the business world, but you look at you know, nuclear bombs yeah. and, and technology. Once you have that everyone's trying to chase you because that is a humanitarian thing and a, a human shifting paradigm if you, yeah. if you have that technology. So the point I'm trying to try to close this back on is, is um, with these two disparities, um, is it wrong to think that we should be looking to fund the the competitors or yeah yeah your competitors or people that don't have these technologies to then grow as a whole 
industry. And the example I will give, if you let me get one more example, is being in school as a, as a kid in high school, we would do um, the placement testing mm -hmm. and our school would be rewarded based on our results. Mm -hmm. So going to, I went to a public school, but it was a, it was a good public school and we would place you know, one or two in the state every year and we would get more funds. And you know, we're sitting here as students like, great, like we're getting these computers, but at the same time, what about the kids down in you know, Southeast Portland? Yeah. And what's that have to say about who actually need those funds? I mean, what's, it just didn't really make rational sense. Because yeah. uh, me, oh great, we're getting it again because we're getting rewarded, but we don't really need these things. Winners take all. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the whole basis of Anand's book is that in this society, we have tacitly agreed that to the successful will flow the spoils. We said that's okay. Yeah. Um, it's a really different culture than where we were post-World War II, where everybody sort of tacitly agreed that what we really need to do is to create the middle class, and that was being spurred by the GI Bill and the idea that our returning soldiers needed a way to reintegrate into society, mm. um, which in turn was a reaction to all the previous demobilizations where millions of soldiers would get sort of thrown at an economy with no way to integrate into them. We also would happen after World War I. But even earlier than that, you know, the British soldiers returning from wars around the empire, they'd come back to England and have nowhere to go. Right. So the GI Bill and the GI, the, sort of that response to create a middle class under Eisenhower was taxed. I mean, what, what, what we sort of forget is that the top marginal tax bracket under Eisenhower was 92%. Mm. And as a society, we were like, that's cool. Right. Can you imagine that no. right now? I mean, no, I mean no. here Elizabeth Warren is saying, let's do a 1% wealth tax. Yeah. And she's getting pilloried. Yeah. Which is way less than what they proposed. Uh, you know, what, what not only what they proposed, but the prevailing tax structure under Eisenhower. And, oh, by the way, the single highest performing rolling 10-year period in the S&P 500 was during that time. Hmm. And so this idea that high taxes automatically result in lower performing stocks is just simply a falsehood. Right. It's a narrative that we've tacitly accepted. Now, there's lots of other, you know, we were the sole remaining manufacturing power in the world because Japan and Germany had been utterly destroyed by bombs, right? So it's like, yeah, there was a reason that our companies were doing really, really well. But nonetheless, um, I, w I wanted to sort of circle back to something you said a few minutes ago, which caught my, caught my ear. Mm -hmm. um, It doesn't have to be that technology is a wealth concentration mechanism. And the example I use in, in, in my own thinking about this is Uber versus Juno. So Uber disrupted delivery and taxi service. And broadly speaking, it created the basis for a gig economy for all the drivers, which is great and troublesome. Like there's pros and cons to that. But from a wealth concentration perspective, you took all this money that was being made by the taxi industry and you flowed it to a relatively small number of shareholders in ride-hailing services, primarily Uber and Lyft, right? Private equity and then, you know, and, and public equity. Take Juno as a counterpoise. Now, now Juno was a ride-hailing service in Northern Europe that was funded by, um, it was started by a technology guy who had exited his company for $400 million and wanted to create a wealth creation opportunity for drivers. So at Juno, the drivers earned shares in the company. I've heard about this, yeah. 
right? Now the company ended up getting acquired, so I don't know what it is anymore, but it was mm -hmm. just a great example of using the exact same technology platform, a ride hailing service, right. to create wealth for the people who are actually delivering the service, right. as opposed to concentrate wealth among the handful of technocrats, not technocrats, but you know, tech, whatever the, the technology people, who created the platform, right? Same technology, same basic idea, disrupt mm -hmm. taxis, totally different view on wealth creation and who gets it. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was saying before we started recording. It's like, to a certain extent, these businesses are all gonna have the same gross operating margin, right? And it's gonna be driven by market from the inputs perspective, labor costs are gonna be driven by the market, you know, the basic operating, gross operating margin is gonna be pretty similar for two similar services, in this case, ride hailing services. But to get down below that, it's like how they split up the profits, how they distribute the wealth creation can be used as a proxy for whether or not they're a social enterprise or not. And I've heard people argue that Uber is a social enterprise because it allows drivers to determine their own schedule and helps with families. All right, maybe. I'm tempted to call bullshit on that, but I'm not going to because I don't want to get an argument. But what's really clear is that Juno absolutely offers a path to wealth creation for people who previously never had it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that a social enterprise? Man, I don't know. It gets kind of slippery from a definitional perspective, but it's clearly something really different from Uber, right? So if you're simply doing a comparison and you're saying, which one is the social enterprise given no other op definitional options, mm -hmm. you'd say, okay, of the two, Juno is the social enterprise, Definitely. Uber not. Definitely. I mean, I define social enterprises, uh, I think I've told you this before, as a company that intentionally solves a problem, or a company that in, goes out to intentionally solve a yeah, problem. Yeah, and I and agree with it, that. As it totally scales it inherently, uh, creates more impact. Yeah. Um, so that would be a, a social enterprise by that definition, 100%. That's something that was never there before yep. in this profit sharing opportunity and, and gig economy was never there before. And now you have riders and drivers that are wanting to be a part of this company and are getting more money into their pockets yeah. doing what they like to do. And I think that's completely... It's a leveling force. It's an it's equalizing force. And it's using all the tools of capitalism. Yeah. Technology, share ownership, profit maximization. It's using all those tools a little bit differently yeah. to create, to, to, to generate wealth creation opportunities for more in the ownership stack than just the people at the very, very top. Yeah, where do, you, where do you think this is going though? I mean, the gig economy is interesting. Yeah. I think it's, I think it is the future in terms of people can just click on to a job. Yep. Um, I also think consulting is going to be a dominant force in terms of how many people can just go online, create their own websites, solve a problem. Yeah. I guess that's what business is. You're, you're solving a, a problem, finding a need and solving that issue. Yeah. Um, so there will be a lot more in this day and age, and I feel like you know, the, like our generation, the generation that's after me, are going to be so much more independent because of social media, because of that, I don't know if it's an egotistical thing, I don't know what it is, but wanting to be by themselves because they've been glued to their phones the entire time, mm -hmm. they're less social. Um, how disruptive do you think that can be uh, in, in, in capitalism going forward? And is there anything that you fear maybe in terms of just like taking, you know, if, if we're on that boat and we're taking that marginal turn? Yeah, I think that what I fear 
is that... Um, and the end the, goal being just disaster, maybe, just... Yeah, so, so for me, <sighs> disaster. Um, Which isn't, yeah, you're not like a, I don't, I don't think, I mean, I don't know. Sorry, I kind of like misread that. The end goal being um, not a society that, that you would deem as... Yeah, just or fair just. or um, equitable. Yeah, so um, like you, I'm a little bit of a student of history. And it's my considered... <laughs> Conclusion that we're basically in the in the second or maybe the third gilded age, right? I mean wealth concentration is at extremes we haven't seen since the early part of the 20th century um, Wealth inequality is we haven't seen it this wide and certainly in the developed world since the last gilded age and I think the pendulum has swung really really far and I think the this is going to be in politics for like, but I think, I think the populist response to that, both in the form of Trump and in the form of Sanders, is a reflection of that sort of existential crisis that we're in right now where everybody sort of feels, not everybody, but basically people feel like the game's not fair anymore. The playing field is no longer level. The elites have failed us. And by elites, I don't mean the self-appointed elites, but the people who are sort of in charge of stuff. The bureaucrats. Yeah, Washington, D.C., corporate leaders, the ivory towers, like the, the elites have sort of broadly failed to grapple with the fundamental shifts that we've experienced over the last 20 years in our society and in our economy. And as a result, an entire generation of people feel like they've been cut adrift, hmm. right? That's not too different from what was happening in the early part of the 20th century, right? An entire generation, and you don't have to look at the Sindo anarchists or the sort of the proto-communists in the very, very early part of the 20th century, you know, pre-Bolshevik revolution, to see where that could get us, mm -hmm. right? So when I think about what am I afraid of, I'm afraid of the pendulum having gone so far and maybe going even further that what's happened is that, that what will follow is sort of massive social disruption and anarchy. Because to me, the outcome of that is um, unpredictable, for sure, but also intensely corrosive, right? It took a really long time in two world wars to sort of sort out what, how we wanted to grapple with the consequences of the Gilded Era, and I don't, I'm not really interested in that. Mm -hmm. So what I'm sort of hoping is that things like B Corp and impact investing and stakeholder capitalism and this constellation of experiments mm -hmm. that have all started to take root at the very early phase of this interregnum will result in a shift that is not violent, a shift that is not cataclysmic, a shift that will get us back to a sense of inclusiveness that doesn't require change at the tip of a spear mm. or the barrel of a gun. Right. Right? I don't, Doing better. I don't know. Right? I don't know. Yeah. But I can say that I have staked my entire professional career and whatever credibility I have on this idea that capitalism can be a force for inclusion just as much as it has been a force for exclusion over the last 25 years. And there's no reason it can't be. Hmm. Right? And I don't mean to lecture you. I get pretty intense about this. But we... Um, we seem to have accepted that the inevitable consequences of a capitalist society is this crazy wealth, income, and opportunity inequality, environmental destruction, all of it. We seem to have just sort of said, oh yeah, that's sort of part of it. 
that's capitalism. But it's not. Right. There's nothing inside of capitalism that says, henceforth, we will despoil the environment. We will pollute the water. We will poison the air. What? Hmm. That's not capitalism. There's nothing intrinsically in capitalism that says that's what's going to happen. Is there anything that can like nudge capitalism? capitalism? I mean, you've mentioned multiple times one back to that company that's changing its operational structure based off its legal ramifications. Yeah. You just mentioned the government's role in it. I'll be a little tentative with that, but yeah. how the government can influence changes. I mean, what's, what's the government's role in this? Yeah, you know, it's funny, but um, um, yeah, before we started recording, I mentioned that I've been thinking a lot about the evolutionary capacity of capitalism. And we're this, we're, we're going to take this for a, a second. second. If you will indulge me, is that yeah. you know, when, when I started down this path almost 15 years ago, my central thesis was that, and this reflects your observation about green canopy homes, was that if we demonstrated that one could invest for a positive, potentially market rate return and generate durable, measurable social environmental value, then everybody would choose that. And if the capital market started to pivot in that direction, then everything else would follow mm. because capitalism is the dominant force. Right? That was sort of my central thesis. And I think if 15 years ago you had said to me, oh, by the way, the Catholic Church is going to come out very publicly and say, we're going to start making impact investments. And some of the storied private equity firms, KKR, BlackRock, Carlyle, TPG, they're going to come out with multi-billion dollar impact funds and trillions of dollars in the capital markets will be deployed along ESG lines and billions of dollars will be deployed towards early stage impact-oriented companies. If you had said that 15 years ago, I said, oh God, great. Then we're yeah. going to win, yeah. right? We will have won if that's the case. Well, here we are now yeah. with that, exactly where we are. And yet I think the problems that we identified, the challenges that we identified 15 years ago that needed to be addressed by exactly the change we've experienced in capital markets are actually worse than they are than they were then. They're right. worse now than they were then. Okay, so the question you have to ask yourself, this is a question I'm interrogating for myself, is hmm. was the central thesis flawed or is there just a time lag, right? And I think my fear is that the central thesis was flawed mm -hmm. and that there actually needs to be a policy response because of the short fuse associated with climate change. I think that if we had hmm. an endless runway, I'd be like, let's just let it, let's just let it keep running, right. right? It's clearly working. More and more capital is oriented that way. Society's shifting. Millennials and women are driving impact. They're inheriting all the money. We're good. My fear is that if we wait that long, if we wait for another generation, that the consequences associated with rising carbon concentrations will be so dire that it will simply be too late. And I don't know, maybe I'm just buying into the, the fear hype associated with um, Greta and the climate movement. Um, or maybe I'm paying too much attention to all the science. Hard to imagine that there's, that's even possible. But I think we are actually on a really short fuse from a climate perspective. And that's why if with my own personal capital, I've simply said, look, um, I get there's all these impact themes and there's 17 SDGs and I'm concerned, I care about all of them and life underwater and life on planet and social justice and gender equality and all, it's all important. But you know what? If we don't solve the climate change issue, mm -hmm. and I was looking at the cover of Real Leaders, you know, um, Paul uh, no, uh, Jane, Goodall, Jane Goodall, climate touches everything. It's like, if we don't solve for that, then all these other issues are kind of not even, it's kind of moot, right? Mm -hmm. Because if our 
society collapses, if civil society collapses under the strain of failing water and food systems and rising sea levels. And like, again, I don't really know, but if that's the case, gender equality is not going to be at the top of the list. Yeah. Well, my thesis is leadership is everything. Leadership. <laughs> and so I think it's the G and the E and the S yeah. that need to make those changes. And that comes from policy and protocols. It sets it. I mean, and, and yeah. I, I, like, I will admit that for years I sort of ignored the G, particularly from a policy perspective. I'm not super interested in politics from an observational perspective I am, from an engagement perspective, not at all. Um, but I'm becoming more and more attuned to the role of governance in all these other issues. Is the system of politics what needs to change then? We've got one person in control of 365 million people. One person. Well, sort of. What do you mean, sort of? Right now, you mean? Right now. Yeah. And in, well, for yeah. the entire, for years to come, there will always be one person. Checks and balances. Checks and Congress, balances. I mean, um, yeah, I don't know. I think you need a political economist or a political theorist to answer that question. <laughs> well, it, it just brings <laughs> up an interesting point. It's like, even if, you know, you said that, uh, there's a short fuse on climate change. I like that a lot. But if we don't, if we do all these great things, like you said 15 years ago, and they're here now, but there's still more disparities now than ever, and we continue to go on that path, that way we might be solving a lot of social problems, a lot of environmental problems, but say it's just too late. What then? Yeah, then it's a lifeboat drill. So, <laughs> is there a solution? <laughs> man. I don't know, man. I mean, you know, there's this... Have there's no of, solution. Have you heard of the hundredth monkey theory? No. What's that? Theory of the hundredth, hundredth monkey is that once you convince the hundredth monkey to do something, the whole tribe will do it. Oh, okay. Right? Um, and that, and that's, that's a really cool thesis, and apparently it works in, in nature. When you have a whole bunch of monkeys, you get a hundred of them doing one thing, and they're all going to do it. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm really, really interested in the twentieth monkey. Mm. Okay. Right now. Yeah. Because I think that's sort of where we are. I think we've got, you know, 18 or 19 monkeys already totally down the road with this. Yeah. And we need to focus on 20th and the 50th and the 80th. More. Like the 99th monkey, once we get there, yeah. then I think the 100th will be there. Um, it's like a domino effect once it reaches that 20. Yeah, well, <laughs> that was a number I just sort of, yeah, I just sort of plucked out of thin air. Sure. Um, but we're not at the 100th monkey yet. Or somewhere mm -hmm. much earlier than the hundredth monkey. The fact that there are still climate change deniers who have their hands on the levers of power tells us that, despite the growing evidence of climate science, that has not won the has not won the argument yet. Then we're a long way from from the hundredth monkey, mm. and that's of no small amount of concern to me. Um, and by lifeboat drill, I didn't mean the Titanic lifeboat drill, i.e. the ship's going down and there's a limited number of lifeboats and who gets in. It could be even more dire than that. You're on a lifeboat. You've run out of water and food. What do you do? Someone brought an example to me, and it was the guy who was next to an airplane. You mentioned the guy down the airplane. Yeah. I was talking to the guy on the airplane, and, and he looked at me in the face. He said, you honestly believe there's not a cure for cancer? This guy, you know, he's probably 50 or 60 years old, and I don't know how this came up, but I looked at it and I said, well, I don't know. I'm sure if there was, it'd be out there. You know, everyone would know about it. And he said, that's complete BS. It's all business, you know, people holding, like the, it's all, he said, it's all the pharmaceutical people holding oh people down and blah, 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 blah. And, and I'm sitting here and I'm just like, 
like, what? So what are you talking about? And it made sense to me after I got to it. I said, well, it could be the same thing with like the fossil fuel industry. It could be the same thing with technology. Oh yeah. The innovation might be here. I can't believe you brought that up. I was on, <laughs> I was on a backcountry ski trip with this dude last spring as I was preparing for my TEDx talk. So I was able to sort of bang back and forth with my, what my talk was going to be about. And he was super helpful. He's a head of R&D in the sort of skunk works division at Pfizer, right? And they have been working on an autoimmune response to cancer for about 10 years, right? So saying, look, on the premise that in everything in healthcare, everything in healthcare you think of as being like absolute best practice tip of the spear now, 20 years from now, it will be seen as barbaric. That's the premise of all R&D in healthcare, mm -hmm. right? He believed 10 years ago that chemotherapy and radiation would be seen as barbaric. Well, it is barbaric. It's sure. horrible. Yeah. But we don't really have a viable option. So this guy said, let's look at different ways, different pathways to curing it. So he discovered this cure. Anyway, he's obviously convinced that there is a cure for cancer and it lies in our autoimmune response. 10 years into the process, they're almost ready to commercialize their research, ready to be begin phase one trials to commercialize their research. They pull all the funding from it. 100% of it. And he explained it by saying they got a new VP of something and he wanted to get his fingerprints on the research budget and he just looked at a project that had been 10 years in the making and it consumed millions of dollars and decided to just kill it. But then he also said, cynically, there's a possibility that we're making so much money on the chemicals associated with chemotherapy and the drugs associated with remediating from cancer treatment that we can't walk away from it because they're all billion dollar drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So to your point, like that, there's an anecdote, no evidence supporting it, but totally supports this guy's speculation. Right. Well, and that's, that's. God, I sound like such a conspiracy theorist. No, well, they, that can be like, you know, linchpin though for like everything and, and new technologies yeah. and, and, and energy. Yeah. And all these uh, critical things that we need as society. I don't know, man. I was just, I, I was looking at the moon last night. I don't know if you had a chance to see it. It was a full moon. Yeah, it's gorgeous. And I'm just sitting there. I'm like, how many more people are going to be able to see that moon? And what's the purpose of being here? Huh. And how old are you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's like that's, that's like old guy. Well, I'm just thinking. I'm just I'm looking at that moon. I was just taking a walk, cleaning my mind. I'm like, what's the point of this? And and, you know, if there are people, well, how, I don't know, how are we going to advance society? What's our purpose of being on this blue planet if we're so lonely in this universe? Or are we lonely? Are there more things out there? Do we need to explore more? What is this? I don't know. That's, that's what I'm thinking out last night. You've got an idea to change, dramatically change people's lives and, and their families. Mm -hmm. What's another billion dollars to another billionaire? Yeah. And like, where, where's, where are the legal ramifications of that and where does that come into play and, and what's, what's ethical and what's, I guess, moral? Well, I mean, you, you know this. I'm just going to share with you what, what you already know, but um, that's the problem with capitalism. It's a collective action challenge, right? In the short term, it makes all the sense in the world to, to sit on the drug or to sit on the cure because you're going to profit shareholders. In the long run, you expose yourself to unimaginable amounts of liability, public condemnation, etc. But nobody cares about that, really, because the capital system as it is designed right now, as it's operating right now, doesn't take into account those long tail risks. 
Enron. You know, I mean, how mm -hmm. many, how many, I just threw one out, how many examples of that do we need? Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and those are the sort of counterfactuals that um, undermine my entire optimistic, future-oriented view of what capitalism can do. And there's mm -hmm. lots of them, right? And I'm in no way saying, hey, there's an inevitability. Capitalism is just great. We're going to be mad, yeah. you know? Um, you know, MLK, his quote, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. Right? I feel like I feel like that's sort of where we are with capitalism right now. Mm -hmm. The arc of this thing is long, and right now we're at a place where there's, there's a reason, there's good reason to feel despondent. Mm. You mentioned, uh, I mean, there's people that are more higher up than we are, and they've created these goals. You mentioned them, you referred to them earlier, this is 17 Sustainable Development Goals. And there's 17 goals the United Nations have put forward to achieve by 2030. No poverty, uh, uh, gender equality, uh, sustainable cities and communities. Um, I mean, the, the list goes on and on. It, uh, peace and justice. I don't want to get on to all the day. You can go online. They're on the Realtors.com, as well as if you just search 17 STGs, they'll pop up on Google. Yeah. Have you? Where have you seen these goals come into play as a framework? Is it for investors? Have business owners been able to use them, and are they effective? Yeah, so my world is very much in the investment world, and so my response is going to be sort of focused on that exclusively. Um, I would say that when they first got launched, there was a lot of s skepticism in my world. Everyone's like, oh God, another framework. Like the last thing you need is another framework. Um, but within a few months of them being launched, people had a chance to digest it and think about how, um, think about the investable absorption capacity of each of the goals. What became pretty clear is that from an orienting perspective, the framework is actually really effective. Um, it allows you to communicate the goals that you're tackling to your investors. It allows you to raise money from mission-aligned pools of capital who also want to address specific goals. What I've seen most often are asset managers who are saying, we're going to tackle the following three in our fund, you know, whatever those are, yeah. you know, SDG 3, 7, and 13. Right. Um, I've not yet seen anybody say, yeah, the full 17, that's like how I'm going to orient my life. I've not seen that yet. I bet it's happening somewhere, though. I bet there are governments that are looking at that and saying, all right, how do we use this framework to think about supporting civil society? And how do we think about prioritizing these, rank ordering them, to tackle them? I bet that's happening. But mostly in the asset management world, it's a way to think about directionally orienting your capital to solve very specific problems mm -hmm. with, the, you know, with the insertion of capital. And if that's your theory of change, right? Mm -hmm. If your theory of change is that we can create sustainable fisheries by increasing the, infra increasing the quality of the infrastructure around um, uh, fish stock location and the health of the f ocean floor, then that's a totally investable theme. Like we've actually invested in sustainable oceans with exactly that mission, mm -hmm. mission right? So you just plop that SDG on top of that, you know, life under the, under the ocean. Right. And suddenly you've got an organizing framework for communicating to your LPs, your, your limited partners, your investors, what right. you're doing. That's the intentional, the intentionality of, yeah. that, of that company. Yeah, because to me, like, the goals are all interwoven. They're all interconnected. Yeah. You know, for instance, if, uh, if I'm going to educate people in uh, North Africa and uh, Saudi Arabia, or see the Middle East and North, Northern Africa, 
that funding for education, that curriculum, that uh, employment of, of better education and better teachers is going to lead to a better economy and yeah. it's going to lead to cleaner water and, and healthier students. Um, and maybe even the food that's no poverty is going to lead to a better, you know, they're all they're intertwined in some way, shape, or form. That's yeah. why it's difficult for me to understand why a company would adopt that that principle into their business if it's already baked in. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was interesting. But really quick, theory of change. Uh, I said I wrote down identifying a problem and working backwards, like reverse engineering, particularly to, uh, on a social or environmental problem. Is that somewhat of, of what you think of theory of change represents? Yes with the added layer of what is the intervention required to implement your theory of change, right? Okay. So the theory of change is exactly right. You see the problem and you reverse engineer it to get to the solution set that needs mm -hmm. to be applied. Um, and then in theory, in theory, um, as you are measuring the efficacy of your intervention, you recalibrate according to what the problem is, right? Um, but no, that's a, good, that's a good one. And I think that you know, from the capital perspective, Every theory of change has to include the insertion of capital. How will my money fund the intervention which will address the problem, right? Because there are theories of change that are around policy. Theory of change is around philanthropy. And capitalism is, it, it, it requires a specific mindset when you're building your theory of change. Theory of change applied to a lot of nonprofits. Yeah, that's um, where it started, I'm pretty sure. I think it did. At least I, I spoke with... Uh, Thane Kreiner, the head of the Miller Center. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he was, he was the one that kind of told me about theory of change. And that's how they, they use that in their, with their MBA students. Yeah, it started in philanthropy. Yeah. So I, I interviewed another company called Global Fund for Children. And they are a venture philanthropy. Oh, cool. So yeah. to, uh, maybe you can hopefully describe this better than I can. I don't really have a definition down here. But what they do is they have an enormous fund that they then allocate to local members in intentional areas to grow the economy or do something specific in that area with their local leaders. Now that's a nonprofit. Yeah. What's the importance of like cross-sector partnerships right now? Uh, and like do you think that nonprofits are a long-term solution given the technology we discussed, given capitalism at its finest? Do you think nonprofits are a long-term solution for fully changing a or solving a existential problem. No. No. And and you don't think. But, okay. but let me sort of let me sort of back into a more robust answer. Um, as an impact investor, I believe that there are challenges best solved with a for-profit model because they allow for scale, right? If you're always dependent upon the generosity of strangers, mm. um, then your ability to scale your intervention is gonna be capped by your ability to capture mind and wallet share of relatively scarce philanthropic capital. Whereas a for-profit model, in theory, is basically limitlessly, limitlessly scalable, mm -hmm. right? Um, However, not every problem is commercializable. Not every challenge, every solution, every challenge is commercializable. I mean, if you run a home for orphaned children of war, you know, conflict areas. Sure, okay. There's no business model there. 
That's pure philanthropy. And the problem will never be solved because there will always be orphaned children in conflict zones, mm-hmm. right? So in that way, I think philanthropy serves an, an, an acute role in cushioning the devastating effects of societal breakdown in ways that will never be commercializable. And that's why philanthropic capital exists, mm-hmm. full on. Mm-hmm. But I also think that in, inside, a large number of nonprofits are commercializable enterprises mm-hmm. with potential revenues attached to them, which could dramatically reduce their dependence on philanthropic capital. I mean, if you think for a minute that there's you know, four, roughly $450 billion worth of philanthropic capital given every single year in the US, it's a lot of money, but it's not that much money. It's only $450 billion, right? That's not gonna chart, that's not gonna change the way the world operates when the global GDP is in the trillions, right? Um, so if you think about it that way, philanthropic capital is scarce. It should be pointed exclusively at um, problems that offer no commercializable solutions liberating commercial capital, potentially below market rate, which gets back to your blended value question, potentially below market rate, but still positive financial return capital, affordable housing, community resiliency, stuff like that, um, to pursue those options from a commercial perspective. Um, I feel like I've sort of lost thread on the question. Um, But I think that there will always be a role for philanthropic capital and that that capital should be directed very carefully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I have lost the well, thread. Well, the, the, the question was, um, in the long term, do you think nonprofits will be able to solve a, you know, an existential problem? And no. so, you, yeah, so you, I would say no. And, and there's also and, a perverse incentive in a lot of them, right? So, so here's, tomorrow I have an interview uh, okay. with uh, Ron Bruden, Education for Employment. Um, so what he, you know, big time corporate guy, what they've done, I believe their model is they've gone to these local areas in the Middle East and Northern Africa, MENA, and they've said, hey, listen, we want to have on our board the top corporations in these areas on our board to then direct funds to build edu- better schools, teachers, uh, tools and equipment for these kids in these communities yeah, yeah. to then employ them and set them up with a job in Middle East and Africa. And so you're just talking about conflict, kids in conflict. Uh, war is a big problem over there. Obviously, yeah. the United States just pulled out, which is make a lot of, I don't know what that's going to do with all the new conflict that will be coming in. It'll be interesting to see. Um, but there's been a lot of these, I guess, these kids that are in these areas, rather than developing with education and learning in a time to expand their brains like maybe you, know, you and I had growing up, it's filled with disruption yeah. and conflict and early marriage and things like that that totally disrupt their learning. And, and the other problem is, is people that have college degrees in Northern Africa, in the Middle East, are less likely to be employed than people that don't. I didn't know that. So they have the highest unemployment rate in the world in this area. And the two examples... Are one's a nonprofit that I interviewed that I'm going to be interviewing tomorrow. That's Education for Employment, and the other one is two companies that I interviewed. One's localized, that focus on providing, um, basically bringing a virtual career fair to students in these 
huh. colleges and communities to yeah. provide them with opportunities outside the community. So less people going, you know, having jobs in the community, which you can argue is good and bad. And then the other one is, um, uh, I'm blanking on the name of the company, but basically uh, they do a similar thing, but I think it's targeted more towards refugees hmm. and providing jobs and, and yeah. education in these local environments. And they're working together. And so these are some for-profit opportunities. And I, I think the other one was actually matching the technology that people need in these areas. So. Yeah. Here you have a for-profit that probably can move quicker. There's a scalable option that can reach everybody versus the non-profit that's using the funds from people in the local communities. Mm -hmm. One's already had a proven impact and the others are kind of startups. So I, I guess I, it makes complete sense when you say it's a cushion for these things to keep going off the wall and, and maybe and, you know, a thing that for-profits can come in and help it. I don't know, and that's, and that's a certain example. Yeah, I mean, that's actually a great way to think about it as well. Um, if the philanthropic capital is effectively serving as the R&D capital for businesses that could eventually become commercialized, right? You go in with capital you can lose. Right. You thesis test, you A-B test, you validate around this idea of job training and connecting them with employers. And then you come, you sort of backfill in with for-profit enterprises, which then scale on the backbone started by the nonprofit, allowing the nonprofit to move to another community and do the same thing somewhere else. I mean, I could, I mean, I know nothing about these enterprises, but I could totally see that. Um, you know, we work with a client um, in Colorado that has about a half a billion dollars of capital, mm -hmm. roughly two thirds of which is commercial, roughly one third of which is philanthropic. And they're using their philanthropic capital to build capacity in enterprises that right now are philanthropically supported, but will eventually be commercially supported. Mm -hmm. And then they'll sort of back you know, they'll sort of invest with their commercial capital to scale the to scale the organizations. What is remittance economy? What's the remittance economy? This yeah. was brought up because it was in it had to do something with like immigrants and people being in nations and then money going back to their own Yeah, you know I mean you know what a remittance is, right? Explain to our audience what it is. Yeah, so a remittance is simply money that has been earned typically in a developed country and then sent back to the developing to the developing country, to support the family that's living there, right? And you see a lot of um, a lot of workers in Saudi Arabia have really high remittances. You see a lot of Filipinos who come to the United States to work, typically in domestic situations, and send a lot of their money back home to the Philippines. Um, the only reason I know much about it is that a really good friend of mine, Matt Oppenheimer, started a company that was originally called Remitly. And he was disrupting um, Wells Fargo's, no, not Wells Fargo, um, Western Union's chokehold on the remittance business. Mm -hmm. I mean, Western Union had 90% market share on global remittances, and they were charging 6% commissions. Oof. And he came in and said, we can disrupt this. So he started a business which works with local banks. It's less than a 1% fee. Happens overnight, right? It's great business. He just he just raised a ton of money in a Series B because he's just doing such a good job. But yeah, the remittance economy is effectively um, it is a um, it's an exogenous source of capital for capital-starved countries created by immigrant workers. You know, nomad nomadic workers. Yeah, to go back to your thing about hunter-gatherers versus um, agriculture societies, sure. right? Yeah, They're promise. nomadic workers. They're mm. willing to work overseas. There's a lot of Nepalis that work overseas. Um, you know, I, I know Nepal fairly well from working on a, a non-for-profit that does a lot of work there. And it's amazing how many in the Sherpa community 
and the Gurkhas live overseas and send their money home. Mm. It, 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 well, some people say, you know, silver bullet would be, you know, employing more women, and the others uh, have said more immigration and, and, you know, getting off the, the noose that's uh, really making it difficult for these workers to get jobs and earn a, you know, a, an okay wage yeah. for the provider for their families. Uh, like, what's your take on uh, immigration and the global, like, globalization? Uh, a multilateral movement that's kind of been going on and remittances role in that as well. I mean, that's, it's, it's a hot yeah. topic right now. And it's that, a really hot topic. I live in San Diego. I got plenty of people coming up from TJ all the time. Yeah. And, and it's great. Um, yeah, so there's, you know, there's, there's economic migration, there's political migration, and then there's refugees, right? And I think mm -hmm. it's important in the conversation to separate them all. Um, you know, I think the idea that we're, that, that by choking off um, economic migrants, that Americans are suddenly going to want to do all the jobs that economic migrants fill right now, I think that's like the height of insanity. Like it's, just not, it's not gonna happen, you know? Um, mm. Economic migrants have always filled the role at the very, very base of the economic pyramid. I mean, they've, 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 not, they've not filled it, but they've participated in that, and it's been a way for economic migrants to create the conditions for their children to do better and for their families to be stable. Like that, that's what economic migration has always been. I mean, the Irish came to America as economic migrants, right? Granted, they were starving, so there was another component to it, but they were economic migrants. Um, so you know, never mind what it says. You know, actually, I'm gonna check myself on that. I think that that, um, that sonnet that's carved into the base of the Statue of Liberty is incredibly meaningful to us as a civil society. You know, send us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free. That is actually America. That is what we stand 100%. for in yeah. the world. And to think that we are going to check the immigrants for their education or their capacity to pay for healthcare before they're allowed in. Like, I get why that argument resonates with a lot of people in America. Populism has ebbed and flowed in this country ever since its foundation. Um, but I think it's fundamentally wrong-headed, not only from a self-definitional perspective, you know, the id of America is to be taking refugees and to make them active participants in a civil society. That's what we have done for 200 years, and we're going to continue to do that, I'm pretty sure. Um, but from an economic perspective, it makes all the sense in the world. It's a steady supply of low-cost labor to continue to drive the economic development of this country. Like, if all we're doing is bringing in people with PhDs, who's going to do all of the hard labor that, this, that every country requires? I mean, we might be a t an an information-driven society, but the fruit still needs to get picked. Yeah, the lettuce still needs to be harvested. The ditches still need to be dug. Mm -hmm. And who's going to do that? Right, the migrants who want uh, who want to get onto that very bottom rung in American society. I mean, that's what, I'm not sure that's what you're asking at all. No, it's 100% with lettuce accent. Yeah, no, because I I mean I interviewed uh, a woman named by the name of Monica Ramirez in New York and she was talking like how big of an issue it is right now and like 
not only is it for females in these marginalized communities, these Native American populations, these migrant populations, but I didn't realize like how much of the economy like these migrant workers make up. And if we were to take them away today, everyone would just fall on their face. Yeah, I mean, it was a it was a really interesting indie doc, you know faux documentary. I think it was called A Day Without a Mexican, and it was a movie based in Los Angeles, maybe it was San Diego, and the premise was what would happen if none of the immigrant workers came to work for a day? Like, what would happen? And it was kind of dark humor, right? It was you know Los sure. Angelino, yeah. you know Beverly Hills ladies yeah, yeah. saying, "Where's my dry cleaning?" You know, yeah, it was exactly. stuff like that. But you know, fundamentally, just sort of just sort of highlighted this idea that. It's an almost an invisible workforce that is utterly pervasive in our country, and we can't just simply scrub it. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because uh, at that tech conference, we were having a hard time getting our cameras to work. <laughs> like, the, 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 our equipment had malfunctioned on us, and here we are at this tech conference, <laughs> yeah. and we're interviewing you know, these CEOs of the organizations of... Um, of cryptocurrency, of AI, of uh, AR, VR, mixed reality, all yeah. these different you know, areas. And the one quote that the guy, the CEO of the, the conference gave me, he said, uh, he said, uh, AI is easier than the AV, which is audio video. So he said, AI, not AV. And, yeah. and it just goes to show, it's like, you know, here we are, we've got these visionaries over here We've got all this tech right in front of us. We're we're now more connected than ever, but we're more dis disconnected than ever. Yeah. Yet, I can't even get my goddamn cameras to work. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, come on, man. Like, how 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 far are, like are we actually? If you're saying this technology is here, and what's what's it going to take to get there? And and is this the right thing to do? Do we need this? I don't know. I just think it's a big bigger discussion um, than kind of what's what's been put out there right now. Yeah, it's, it's social and cultural, and I don't have any answers. I'm not a technologist myself, and I have a phone. I use it reluctantly. Yeah. Um, when technology helps me, I'm a huge fan, mm -hmm. but I find that it helps me much less. I read a, <laughs> I think it was an economist, but it was um, uh, Silicon Valley thinks far more of itself than anybody else thinks about Silicon Valley totally. or, or sort of something like that. <laughs> um, and that's, that's totally where I am. Like I recognize the um, inevitability of the continued computerization of our society. Um, similarly, I recognize the inevitability of the increasingly diaphanous um, interface between humans and technology. Like that is, that gap is closing. Mm -hmm. I use an AI scheduling assistant, and I've had people send her a bottle of wine. Her. The fact that I even anthropomorphized a piece of software with, an adjective, with, with a pronoun her tells you how blurry that's getting, right? Yeah. I mean, it's the movie that Joaquin Phoenix was in, Her, right, where he fell in love with his operating yeah. system. Um, but I've had people ask me if she's single. I've had people right. send her thank you cards, and it's software. Does it have a gender, right? Yeah, Julie. Yeah, exactly. Um, ironically, so it's, fr it's a French company, Julie Desk. And I asked the developers if I could assign Julie a name because it's Julie at URL. And I asked her if I could give her a last name and then we were sort of back and forth on that for a little while. And they was like, yeah, sure, you can give her a last name. So I chose Asimov, right, author of iRobot, thinking people are going to tip, you're going to tip to this, right? I've had like two people in three years comment on, it. comment on the fact that it's Asimov and ask, even though in her, in her, in its auto signature, it says Julie at Julie Desk, artificial intelligence at the Caprock Group. And people still don't do it. And I'm the only one in the company who's using it. 
Like I'm the only one at the car park group who uses it, hmm. which I also find really interesting because it's hugely leverageable. I mean, you know, whatever. Well, <laughs> I was I was just gonna say I had I had a great point in my head. I totally totally lost it. <laughs> Uh, but it was just, it was going to be, I think it was about tech, text rule. Anyway, uh, we've talked about it today. Yeah, we've, yeah. we've, 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 you know, we've, we've a far ranging conversation. Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very complex conversation. Um, and we've covered a lot. And I, I think, you know, at the end of this conversation, what I would like from you is, you know, if, if the, if we started with saying, you know, the intent is just letting people know we don't have all the answers, but we'd like people to think of existential questions. questions what's the question that you're thinking of right now and what's an existential question that you propose leaders in capital markets should be thinking about as well so I'm an optimist and a capitalist so I have an enormous amount of faith in the evolutionary capacity of capitalism and so to me they're sort of nested questions right um, and I think the one that I would really the one that I would really get at like the smallest Russian doll inside all those nested Russian dolls would be why do we presume that the negative consequences of the current iteration of capitalism must continue? Okay. Why do we as a society presume that to be the case? Now granted, there's a whole group of people over here that you're exposed to all the time with real leaders, that I'm exposed to all the time with impact investors, yeah. who are testing that all the time. Mm -hmm. But the prevailing wisdom, the prevailing perspective is that the ex current form of capitalism is the form that will prevail. And I would say, why do we presume that? Why are we not challenging that as a society? And I think if people just interrogated themselves around their presumptions, mm. um, their cognitive biases in favor of that, they'll very quickly realize that it's an artificial construct, which leads you to a host of much more interesting questions, which is based around what will replace it? Hmm. What will it evolve into? And I think that there's this massive experiment going on at the front end of this interregnum based on that question. Why do we presume it will remain static? Capitalism has never remained static. Static is always in a process of reinventing itself. Right now, we're reinventing it into something else. Something that's more equitable, something that's more just, something that's more, more inclusive, something that's more environmentally resilient. What does that look like? That's where I would go with it. Yeah, I like that a lot. Well, Matthew, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming. It's really it. fun, man. Thanks for, thanks for flying down here. We appreciate you. Yeah, thanks uh, for... I bought carbon offsets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I can't believe it's October already. We were talking about this in June, uh, and, and now we're finally here. So again, on behalf of Realtors, we do really appreciate your time coming down here. I always enjoy our conversations. As do I. Um, yeah. I knew this would go long today, and I, I was looking forward to it. and mentally prepared the entire weekend um, uh, for, this, for this, one, uh, this one day. So thank you again for coming down. Uh, for people listening to this on audio, on video, uh, thanks for hanging on with us. and as we uh, try to define uh, how the system of capitalism can be updated uh, and, and go over those, those uh, the pros and cons, the, the, the benefits, and maybe not the not-so-benefits of, of decisions that business leaders are making. That was an impressively tight summary of such <laughs> crazy conversation, man. <laughs> it's going everywhere. And I'm, I, got, I remember, remember the thing I was going to tell you after this conversation. Okay. I'm not going to bore these people any longer. So anyone, everyone, thanks for tuning in today and uh, 
Uh, I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, from Matthew Weatherly White. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. I just want to let you always uh, want you guys. Jesus, I'm going to have to edit that one out. Man <laughs> almighty. Maybe the only edit of the day from Matthew Weatherly White. I'm Kevin Edwards, telling you all to keep it real. All right. Right on. <laughs>